Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I'm your host, Jill Miller. Today, our guest is Dr. Afton Hassett. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who is an associate professor and director of pain and opioid research in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Michigan. She's a principal investigator at the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center, where she conducts interdisciplinary research related to exploring the role of positive emotions in people with pain, as well as developing novel interventions to promote resilience and better pain self-management. She's published over 100 articles that are peer-reviewed in scientific journals and is a leader in the field of resilience and pain. Dr. Hassett is a past president of the Association of Rheumatology Professionals, a division of the American College of Rheumatology, and she is also the author of the upcoming Chronic Pain Reset, which is an innovative pain pain self-management book for people and patients It is to be released on September 5th of this year, and I am super excited to read that. So Dr. Hassett, thank you for joining us and welcome. We're gonna talk a little bit about uh, managing chronic pain for spondyloarthritis uh, through cognitive behavioral therapy. Great. Oh, Jill, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm so happy to share some of our insights from research and clinical practice with you and your, and your audience. So. This is a big one, right? We don't think of pain control in terms of behavior therapy very often, Mm -hmm. but how does behavioral therapy approach different from traditional pain management techniques on the whole? So that's a great question. Um, Predominantly uh, traditional pain approaches involve medications and interventions. You know, often in um, spinal arthritis, we look at reducing the inflammation um, and using medications to do that. Um, But pain is caused by so much more than just inflammation. There's pain that can be neuropathic pain as well. And there's also pain that is generated almost Um, entirely from the brain, or at least um, pain signals can be amplified from the brain. And we see this commonly in conditions like fibromyalgia and chronic low back pain. And and I I do believe that, you know, many people with with autoimmune disease um, also have um, comorbid fibromyalgia. So they might have pain coming from multiple um, sources from inflammation, from perhaps a nerve impingement, or or even potentially generated or made worse by the brain. And our behavioral interventions are particularly effective at getting to these other types of non-inflammatory pain. And those would be, is it called nociceptive pain? Yes, well, so nociceptive pain is what we refer to when we can kind of identify what's causing the pain. So nociceptive pain comes from like an incision from surgery or from bone on bone um, grinding as an osteoarthritis or inflammation that's caused by our autoimmune diseases. That's kind of nociceptive. That means the little little receptors um, are picking up on some sort of pain input. So then there's something called nociplastic pain, which is the pain that we refer to more in the context of fibromyalgia, chronic low back pain, or 
secondary pain that can layer on top of autoimmune disease pain. And this is primarily what you're focused on compared to Yes, to, to, on the secondary pain. That's right. And, and I think I think all people, even with inflammatory pain, can benefit from behavioral strategies, but it appears to be particularly helpful for when people's pain has become more generalized kind of across the body or is perhaps due to other um, other things like like nosoplastic pain. So this is, of course, a leading question. Uh, sure. But, uh, and I, I'm thinking in terms of someone is going to walk into an office mm -hmm. of a uh, practitioner or a psychologist or, uh, and they're in pain. They've been in pain for a long time, as most of, I think, many of our listeners can probably, uh, probably relate to. Mm -hmm. I, how does cognitive behavioral therapy help you manage that? Oh my God. Yeah, no, Jill, it's a great question because I, I didn't want to give the impression that um, only people with fibromyalgia or chronic low back pain respond to these behavioral therapies. They're good for everybody because what they kind of teach us are ways that we can live well, um, kind of despite the pain and also things that we have the power, our power to be able to change the ways that we can actually modify our pain by the things that we do so cognitive behavioral therapy kind of presupposes that um, our emotions and our thoughts can impact pain so maybe you can think of a time in your life where you felt really stressed out and you were maybe anxious or angry and noticed that your pain felt worse that's kind of a powerful example of how our emotions and thoughts can make our pain much worse yeah i've been there yeah, everybody has. Uh, well, and I, I will say, like, I think a lot of people have been there potentially, and maybe yeah. you can corroborate this. Yeah. Uh, as many people with uh, AS or SPA mm -hmm. uh, have experienced, right, the diagnosis cycle is really mm -hmm. long. Yes. And you're seeing these doctors and you're like, I'm in pain. And then like, I don't feel good. I hurt. Yeah. And for every person that tells you, well, that's, you know what, we don't see anything on the, on the films, yeah. maybe it's all in your head. Yeah. Oh, uh, and then the pain actually, right. And then we're in more pain because we're not being heard. Yes. And then it becomes this almost, I don't even want to call it a loop, but it, 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 it is a loop. tangled mess yeah. uh, of where things are coming from in your body. So do you see that a lot? Is that one of the examples you'd mm -hmm. Oh, it's a cardinal example. And if you even look at the World Institute of Health and how they define pain, they say pain is a sensory, evaluative or, or thought um, related and emotional process. We don't just kind of experience pain as just sensory. And um, when people are suffering because they aren't getting a diagnosis and kind of going from doctor to doctor and being doubted, that causes an incredible amount of stress and also self-doubt. You know, maybe there's something wrong with me. It can yeah. be really upsetting and that can certainly make the pain worse. That's interesting. So I think that it goes to this, I'm not going to speak for the general population, yeah. but for me personally, it was once I received the diagnosis, mm -hmm. it became 50% mental. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. 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 So tell me more about that. So how, why do, why do you think it became 50% mental at that point? Well, I think it was first, uh, 
after many years of, okay, so I went decades mm-hmm. uh, of just saying like, I don't feel good or my gut's bothering me or I have, I'm 19 years old and I threw out my back or whatever happened, right? And I went through this over and over and everyone kept saying, oh, well, there's nothing on the film. You don't have celiac. You don't have Crohn's. This isn't your problem. And then it started to accelerate when I was really like heading toward needing, because I didn't, I'd never thought anything about an autoimmune disease. And then I headed toward uh, really being ill where I couldn't get out of bed, couldn't pick up my little kids who were babies had stopped working. And I just kept saying, I'm like, I hurt all day, every day. And I, I had a few, a a few doctors or practitioners who said, well, it's, it's kind of all in your head. Get a, get one of them said, you need to get over your anxiety. And I, and I finally, and then someone said, have you been to a rheumatologist? And we did a a separate episode with Dr. Uh, Arnold, who was my rheumatologist. Mm -hmm. But when I got there and somebody said, well, maybe like first tell me your story and then maybe this is going on and we're going to do some labs to prove it. Once I worked through a diagnosis, and I think a lot of people do, then you have the opportunity to say like, how am I going to manage? Mm-hmm. I, With or without a chronic disease, you have to manage your life, right? <laughs> so shifting, and I know there are a lot of people who are in a lot more pain than probably I was and am now. Um, but for me personally, I think that's where I took it. And I did go to, down the road of, of CBT, not necessarily mm-hmm. for management. Mm-hmm. Uh, and someday I would love to have uh, the person I worked with on uh, because we often talk, he said, well, when you walked in, you were almost in a catatonic state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now you're like this alive person who I, you know, I don't think I know what it's like to wake up without like a little bit of pain or stiffness, but mm-hmm. I think it became very, uh, yeah, it, be- it, it became very like mind over matter a little bit. Or I remember, cause I used to take pain meds and at one point I uh, decided <clears throat> It took about an hour and 15 minutes for, uh, I, I was taking, I think it was, is it tap and tattle, like a new mm-hmm. system? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it used to take an hour and 15 minutes for it to kick in. And I thought, well, geez, I live a quarter of a mile from the gym yeah. where there's a heated pool, mm-hmm. <laughs> a physical therapy pool. And I could get in there and spend 45 minutes before a pain pill. Yeah. But like some of it for me was working through all, and I still try to perfect it, right? I'm seeking that, but okay. I don't want to derail us, but these, these are like, I'm, I'm imagining you hear similar stories and I know probably on the, I don't want to make the assumption that I'm the the typical, because I think I'm probably, I'm somewhere in the spectrum of where Mm -hmm. the occurs Yeah. Um, or, you know, people who show up and they, we talked about beforehand was uh, some of us are in so much pain. We end up in in an ER or something yeah. and we're receiving pain meds, but they're still not working. And what do we do in that? Does, does that something that you hear happens for people? Yeah, no, Jill, your story really resonates with the stories of many, many people I've heard that, you know, it, it, it's such a combination of things. And so in the medical community, most pain management is something that's done to us, right? Somebody yeah. gives you a pill, somebody does some sort of intervention, What's remarkable about CBT and kind of behavioral pain management is now you have some control. 
you're given the techniques and the strategies and you work with things that you know that have happened and in working with somebody that can kind of help you put these pieces together. But even exploratory using books and, and other resources can help you identify what are the tools that you can use to help you um, improve your pain and, and to give you a chance to have um, infinitely more control over your pain as you learn what things work for you. And everybody is so individual. And I know you'd mentioned that you've done some meditation and some other uh, types yeah. of mindfulness practice that you find helpful. Yeah, I, and I've done a variety. And I do know some people who've done the, uh, oh, uh, it's this idea of like, I'm not going to be this person anymore meditation. And I'm going to convert my, like a Joe Dispenza does it really well. I love that guy. Uh, but some people met you know, a variety of different things. So do you recommend meditation uh, and in the process of pain management? I do. And, and meditation is kind of many things <laughs> and, and, and um, they all kind of gather around the notion that we become still, we become peaceful. We don't become over involved in our world around us and, and literally have time to kind of get within. So for mindfulness types of meditation and activities, it can be as simple as just focusing on your breath and just noticing the simple act of breathing as the air comes in and the air goes out and allowing yourself to be present in that moment, grounded in that spot and feeling the air going in and out. And, and as thoughts come in, in mindfulness meditation, you just kind of dismiss those thoughts because that's what happens. Our thoughts intrude all the time like crazy. But being in a simple place and just saying, hey, I hear you thoughts, go away for a moment. I'm thinking about my breathing. And just that few minutes of intentionally keeping to bringing yourself back to just your breathing is incredibly empowering, just grounding. Because what happens when we're sick and flustered and frustrated and angry is our thoughts are everywhere. And sometimes <laughs> life can feel so incredibly chaotic because we're not grounded. And so most meditative practices bring us back to just kind of being here, being in our bodies, being at peace for a moment and feeling a little bit more grounded. Yeah, I I was using that this morning at 3 a.m. when I, <laughs> I go, I immediately go to, I just do quietly ohm in, ohm out. Mm -hmm. yeah. until I feel a little better uh, for whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I probably should do it more between nine and five every day. <laughs> uh, so how do you educate your clients mm -hmm. uh, or as you're, as you're building, I guess, an army of people, yeah. <laughs> uh, CBT for pain management. Mm -hmm. um, how do you educate people? Is it a very individualized protocol or do you have certain things that are key in this? So, so interestingly, cognitive behavioral therapy is very many things. It's not like a thing that follows a specific, you do this at one moment and that at the next. Even our studies are kind of hard to interpret because one person's cognitive behavioral therapy in one study will look very different than the next one. But the basic premise of cognitive behavioral therapy is first kind of patient education, you know, learning about pain, learning about yourself, what works, what doesn't work, learning about uh, learning the, the very skills that can be integrated. And then cognitive behavioral therapy kind of takes a series of steps towards addressing the various things that um, 
can make our lives stressful. So for example, one element of cognitive behavioral therapy for pain is considering mood, right? The role that our emotions play in, in, um, in our chronic pain. Another element will look at our thoughts. How are our catastrophic thoughts or our fear avoidance thoughts getting in the way of us wanting to do what we wanna do? Another part of cognitive behavioral therapy will look at how are we able to execute physical activities, the things we wanna do? Are we afraid to move? Why are we afraid to move? How do we get beyond that? How do we integrate things back into our life that we love doing? Because yeah. most people with chronic pain and chronic illnesses stop doing the optional activities, but these optional activities are usually the things that make our lives worth living, yeah. <laughs> you know, in favor of just kind of getting by and doing work and taking care of, you know, the household chores and all the, the day-to-day bill paying and things we have to do. But not having a life that feels rich and rewarding is often not a life that people want to live. And then that feeds into the depression side, yeah. you know. Cognitive behavioral therapy also presupposes that sleep is one of the most important elements of our health. And um, a, um, a, a very large part of CBT often is identifying sleep problems and then helping people um, remit those and get people sleeping again. And then there's just a bunch of kind of um, different skills and strategies to help us um, manage pain. What are the things that we know that make our pain better? What are the things that make them worse? And how do we make the changes in our lives so that we can experience the least pain. And I want to come back to some of those tools. I, sure. I do have a question. Yes. So I, uh, I know you're a CBT person. I'm mm-hmm. going to ask like a curveball a little bit. Here. Sure. I so love a different life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I spent some time using not, not for spa, but I think it helped me in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the rational emotive behavior therapy uh, approach, mm-hmm. which I break down as, right? It's whether or not you act rationally when the world mm-hmm. serves up some bad things to you, when someone else serves up some bad things, or you feel like you've failed. Um, and I used it in an approach in like facilitating some uh, group trauma. Uh, and it was like the biggest privilege of my life to be able to spend time with these people. But do you see that there may be, uh, and if this is too deep, maybe we back off, but uh, cause I certainly don't want to upset anyone that would be listening, but do you see times when maybe we blame ourselves or we blame something else? And that is actually, and I know that's, that's just a different expression and I don't know what it is in CBT, but I think that there is a lot of that going on. At least I think there was for me. I did lots of CBT for this area of my life. And then I, I actually stepped up to a hundred thousand foot view with like our rational emotive mm-hmm. therapy. And I was like, Oh, woof. I've been blaming a lot on the world and people in my life. And once I did that, I, I feel like I closed that gap for myself. And I don't know if you've seen that happen or if that's something like people that you consider as you take people through a therapy or a therapeutic approach. Yeah. So rational motive behavioral therapy is so interesting because it really um, allows us to examine the nature of our thoughts and yes. the degree to which we um, are thinking rationally, right? The degree, degree to which we are blaming other people for all the wrongs, the degree to which we are bl- over blaming ourselves yes. <laughs> and being really, really mean to ourselves, which 
most people have almost more the tendency to do, to be yes. too up on themselves. And so that's kind of the C part of cognitive of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of taking this next step. So very often when people start in cognitive behavioral therapy, we'll start with the very behavioral elements. Let's try to get people sleeping well. Let's try to get people moving again and doing things they enjoy. Let's look at some of these, um, how people's mood is what, what's, what do we see as far as depression and anxiety? And when we start kind of nosing around those areas, we understand what is the nature of the thoughts that are driving these emotions. And sometimes the thoughts are a lot of the self-blame. Sometimes the thoughts are a lot of the blaming others and not taking responsibility. And sometimes there's just these catastrophic, not based in reality <laughs> types right. of old beliefs, really old things that we learned in our childhood that maybe suited us well then, that somehow we've just drug into adulthood and are very much undermining our happiness now. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And it's also the like, and then you've got those and then you let your like analytic mind just yes. go wild, right? Just go wild, right? And okay, so I, the idea rails, but that was, that was really helpful because I think it's that like, mm -hmm. sometimes we have to reframe, are we being, mm -hmm. when we're having the, and I think it does link to pain and I'm, I'm exploring this primarily because I do think there's a lot of this link to pain about what's in our our minds yeah. um, and it doesn't mean to discount any pain that anyone's having right because we know there are different types of pain and a different spectrum uh, but you know incremental improvement is always helpful too <laughs> over time uh, so the like in terms of people with spondyloarthritis specifically mm -hmm. uh, have you seen any specific challenges to that population mm -hmm. or is it I think, you know, I, I think it, it isn't terribly different than the other autoimmune diseases as far as appropriateness and response to the therapy. So I think there, I think it's a really natural fit that, you know, there's some elements of CBT, but, you know, I just kind of wanted to return to something that you had said when we were talking about kind of the nature of our thoughts and trying to pick them apart. Yeah. So cognitive behavioral therapy, as I mentioned before, it's kind of many things and there yeah. is this whole new second and third wave of cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapies and people may have heard of acceptance and commitment therapy Ooh. or mindfulness-based stress reduction or dialectical behavioral therapy or pain reprocessing therapy so there's kind of these all these new forms of CBT that are particularly helpful for uh, for people with pain. So, so it, it is kind of many things, but one element I just wanted to bring forward, um, when we were talking about all the thoughts and the feelings that people kind of have and can be totally overwhelming, in, in acceptance and commitment therapy, one of the, the main thoughts there is that um, what we think and feel are all sorts of kind of almost like random noise and then what is kind of helpful is just to step back and just realize, oh, I'm having a feeling. I, I'm having a lot of anger. Okay, what's that about? All righty, that's a human thing. I'll let it go. I don't have to act on it. And then kind of the same thing with thoughts too. Again, when these thoughts come in our head, oh my God, I'm the worst person in the world. Everybody hates me. So like, oh, I'm having a weird thought that I'm the worst person in the world and everybody hates me. But that's just a thought. Yeah. That's just something that arises and I don't need to act on it. I don't need to believe it. It just is. And right. so, and so, you know, with rational mode of behavioral therapy, we really get into the digging into why and how and what, 
whereas in acceptance and commitment therapy, we think, you know what? We just have all sorts of thoughts and emotions and we're human and we can just kind of let them go. <laughs> we don't have to act on everything and dwell on everything and beat ourselves up. It's, it's just not terribly productive. So as someone is, so I love the idea of these different buckets. So yeah. if someone walks into your office, yeah. uh, is there an exploration of what might fit best for them or what happens in the first? Yeah. I mean, and I'm assuming there's a protocol. So I, I think we can talk generally for like, right. if someone were to walk in and say, yeah. you or another clinician, yeah. I've got this thing and I need to manage my pain. What do you think? <laughs> so this, this is where you get me a little bit on the short end. So because I've been predominantly a researcher for the last oh, 20 sure. years, <laughs> I, you know, I haven't had the luxury of looking at these other approaches. So I just, you know, all of my patients got CBT for pain. That's kind of okay. what we did. And, and now as a researcher, I have the total pleasure of studying these. And so most of what I do now is oversee studies that provide these interventions to patients with various pain conditions. And we study who responds to what treatment, how does the treatment work, what are the effective elements of the treatment. And so we're more in the weeds. So I, so I wouldn't be a great person to respond to the question, you know, how do I decide what treatment to give to what? Yeah. Person. Okay. Yeah. But I would guess that there's, there is, well, you may not know, but I would guess that there is some, an advice of someone trying to ex beginning to explore this would be to expect, maybe sit down and you talk about it a little bit. And then from there, a treatment plan evolves just like it would with a medication. Very much so. And, in, on, and just like there's specialties amongst the medical, the medical professions, there's specialties within psychology. So there's, there's, um, psychologists and social workers and others who really specialize in acceptance and commitment therapy and act. That's their thing. And so they'll tend to approach patients really kind of from that perspective. And, and that's that's kind of how they go at it. Then there's others who are more mindfulness-based stress reduction. So they come at it a very strongly mindfulness-oriented way. But many psychologists know all of them. <laughs> so they know these approaches and they can tailor it. And sometimes it's a little bit of picking and choosing too. You know, and I think that's one thing we have learned over time is that one approach does not fit all. It, right. People are so unique and have such unique emotional functioning and, and sets of experiences and thought processes that the goal is really to do our best job tailoring therapy. And that's something we spend a lot of time thinking about in research is how do we tailor these therapies you know, to, so we can have the best um, response for a given person's unique. Um, yeah. And do we know, okay, so my, my head, my self-diagnosis, mm -hmm. PhD head is going to, uh, do you know, as people have a reduced, uh, a reduced pain score, reduced mm -hmm. overall pain when they're embracing CBT, I'll say, mm -hmm. uh, in your research, do we specifically see that pain scores are being reduced or do we know that we're producing more dopamine or oh, yeah. producing more of the neurotransmitters that maybe result in pain control. 
Yeah, no, that, 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 I love that question. We're not quite there with our science, though we do, <laughs> though we do understand. So one of the things I really am fascinated by and really focus on um, researching is resilience in our patients and understanding more about what are the unique attributes to the individuals who have really significant disease and, and disability and pain and remain resilient. And they are the ones that also tend to have much better outcomes that you know, they are able to function uh, well despite the pain. And so what is kind of unique about you know, uh, these folks who are, who are resilient? And, um, and, you know, and, and then how do we devise interventions that will help other people learn these unique skills about being better able to bounce back and uh, so can you share them or do we have to wait for the book? No, oh, no, I can share. So, the, yeah, this is a big focus in my book. Um, so uh, what I do in the beginning of the book is I spend about 15 chapters kind of talking about um, all we've learned in the last 20 years about pain and inflammation and uh, and the brain. And, and, and hopefully in easy to understand terms, I kind of talk about what we understand about about our thoughts and our emotions and our behaviors and how these all impact pain processing. And what we do know is that when you eat well, sleep well, exercise, you actually can impact your brain's structure and function. And thus we see people have pain reduction, less inflammation. I mean, everything that we hope for. But what's amazing is that um, friendship, being in with having strong social support, feeling connected to others also impacts brain neural networks, as do, do positive emotions like joy and love, doing things that you enjoy doing that bring you a state of flow or, or engagement and happiness all impact the brain and thus impact in, in pretty observable ways our experience of pain. And so I, I kind of walk hopefully the patients in an understandable way through this do these data, and then I have them try over a 30-day period one kind of CBT or positive activity um, activity a day. So, for example, you might learn something about a skill that we teach for people to decrease our stress. Right. So it could be a it could be a breathing technique or a guided imagery, or it could be you know, progressive muscle relaxation. But you know, each day you you kind of learn about one of them, and then you give it a try, and you think. I think that's stupid. I don't think I'd ever want to do that again. Or you think, ooh, I'd like to learn more about that. And then so each day you kind of pass judgment on 30 different activities, skills, and practices that we use in cognitive behavioral therapy and, and beyond. And, and so I do draw from acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and positive psychology. And by the end of it, you've tried everything from gratitude a journaling to acts of kindness to seeking purpose in life. And and at the end of the 30 days, hopefully you've maybe selected five to 10 things. You're like, oh my gosh, I so want to learn more about that and begin to build a program that makes sense to you. Because I think the point you were making is that what therapy works for one person is usually that therapy that the person thinks is going to work and is willing to do. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting. So you're describing and you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, at the very beginning of COVID, maybe the second weekend in, yeah. I enrolled myself in the science of well-being yeah. that Marie Santos at Yale teaches. Yeah. And it's for any listeners, it's I believe it's still a free course on Coursera, yeah. but it does the same thing over. It was a six week class. And I think they adapted it for COVID and maybe it came back to the, yeah. the baseline. But it was all these things. It was one week of gratitude, 
yes. one week of savoring, mm -hmm. one week of meditation, mm -hmm. one week of, it, it was, and every week, and for me, right, I'm like a, how does all this work kind of person? Yeah. So it walked you through the positive mm -hmm. psychology, the Sonia Lubomirsky work yeah. and Kahneman's work. It was a fascinating class. Like, yeah. I, honestly, I'm going to step back and say it probably shifted the course of my life yeah. because of when I took it. Yeah. I and I was engrossed in it, I every, it for the first six weeks of COVID. And I highly recommend. Uh, yeah. These are the things... Yeah, so what you're talking about, um, you're talking about almost like putting your all your options in a bucket for who mm -hmm. you are, and yeah. then, right? To me, those are like the the variables that you those are your, your your chosen tools. They're the chosen tools that you're going to toss into a toolkit that you're going to draw from, and then those tools. I mm because -hmm. uh, I'm also looking at like shifting causality. Right. Yeah. So the causality of pain, uh, that's another conversation uh, that we talk a lot about at work here. Uh, but uh, what technology is becoming super important, right? Right. right. For a yeah. lot of these tools. Yes. So what do you see or recommend yeah. uh, in terms of is there technology people can use or mm. very simple stuff? Or is it what works for the human being might be, you know, an iPhone might be right for someone and a Walkman might be right for someone else. So true. Yeah. So yeah, and so that's kind of I, I wondered if writing a book made sense. I mean, and this this is my you're talking about pandemic. This is kind of my pandemic project too. It's like I was watching way too much TV. So it's like, okay, I was streaming way too many uh, episodes of the Gilmore Girls. So I was like, okay, I gotta do something with my time. And so I wrote this book and I thought, but you know what, what you do is you pair it with technology. Yeah. So I'm a strong advocate of using free resources out there. So one of my very favorite free resources is an app called Insight Timer. And it's free, 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 free. And I think there's like over 14 million people that subscribe to it. It's just marvelous. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of um, I don't want to say meditations. That's not right. But they're recordings. And there's anything from mindfulness to uh, guided imagery to help people with sleep, anxiety, energy, concentration. They're one minute meditations. They're one hour long explorations, but it's, you know, it's all free. And it's something that if you're feeling really overwhelmed by the day, you plug in your earphones and your phone, you hit the app, you do a three minute refocusing meditation, yeah. you know, what a great, you know, just a little injection and what a great way to use three minutes that you might have just spent stomping around or eating a bunch of cheesecake. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I'm i with you 100% because yeah. what I will say is my second week into that class, yeah. which is technology-based, right? It's on yeah. Coursera. Yeah. I, and I remember everyone around me was starting to lose. I lose, I was in trouble for day one of COVID because I got grounded. I was like a traveler. Uh, and everyone around me though, I felt like the world was starting to lose hope. Yeah. And I remember waking up one morning, someone had sent me a picture. I'd been in Frankfurt on March 1st and it was like March 20th. And they sent me a picture of that same airport where it was super busy on March 1st. Wow. And it was like a ghost town on March 20th. And I'd already enrolled in the class. And I looked at it, that picture and I like jumped out of bed and I said, you know what? I'm going to start a hope bank. 
And Yay. hope for anybody who needs hope until Yay. this is over. <laughs> it sounds crazy. No, it's not. It's awesome, but Jill. That got me through some of the darkest moments yes. of yeah. COVID and everything else and a chronic disease and like family carnage, yeah. chaos oh. from COVID. But it's yeah. really interesting. I like the idea of the, where, the way you're pairing it, the pairing yeah. the technology, because I think this is really important. And it's, uh, we also want little bites. I want little bites all the time yes. from somewhere, but sometimes the science behind it is really important. Uh, let me ask you a question. This is also sure. a, kind of a bit of a curveball. I, I, we've gotten way in the weeds, but I'm, I'm having okay. a great time. Uh, was you have done your research over a career, right? This has mm -hmm. been decades of a career. Um, have you seen, uh, obviously there's been a shift, right? Toward inclusion yes. Yes. Uh, and other populations mm -hmm. um, that are traditionally in medical research underrepresented. Have you seen anything remarkable or um, that has been game changing for any groups who would be underrepresented or previously yeah. marginalized or gender? Yeah. Oh, such a great question. So um, we're we're a research group and we we live and die by the National Institutes of Health and what their priorities are. And um, the opioid um, crisis um, brought with it uh, some incredible opportunity for us to do a much better job of how we deal with individuals with, with um, addiction, individuals with chronic pain. And the NIH has put a very strong focus on, on you know, pain. And so it's great for us to kind of study that. And their focuses have also moved towards the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion in research. And so the emphasis is just, you can just feel it. It's wonderful. We just got an $800,000 grant to establish a health equity core within the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center that does nothing but help us reach out to communities of color and underserved communities to help educate, but also invite them to become you know, part of research. Um, I mean, that's such a powerful thing. Many of the yeah. announcements coming out are asking you know, specifically so we can do a better job of inclusion. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I, a day doesn't pass and I yeah. about how we do a better I, job serving so that was That's driven by NIH or was yes. that like the NSF type one grants? Yeah. Because there's so, a lot of that too, right? The National Science Foundation and National Insti Institute. Yeah. Really, yeah. The, I, I think the I will say that the government's doing a better job of being inclusive. They are. And, and I've read a lot of their work too. Yes. yes. Just in and general, which it, is. It, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's about time, but yeah. it's really palpable that this is a yes. change. And, you know, it's enabled us to get some amazing grants. And so I'm working with an, a remarkable young woman in the School of Public Health at University of Michigan named Mary Janovic, who um, I worked with and helped her adapt a a kind of a, it's a walking, walking oriented physical activity, cognitive behavioral oriented um, intervention. We put a bunch of these kind of these positive psychology things like you learned in Lori Santos's class from gratitude yep. and acts of kindness. And, um, and we adapted it and developed it for older um, African-American individuals feeling isolated by COVID living in the uh, Detroit area, the very underserved areas. And we had never seen a response to, to a treatment. They, their response was so profoundly powerful. Uh, the, the, uh, the intervention itself is delivered by community health 
um, health um, workers. So they're folks that are, you know, it, embedded in the community. They they look like the people that they're serving. They have similar circumstances. And, you know, but just teaching these underserved communities, the very things, all the things we actually take for granted, but, yeah. you know, but adding in the richness of music and how much music has meant to, to their lives as, as older people. So, and, and, and building resilience. And so that's kind of the neat, the next piece I wanted just to tap into that NIH has also began to focus on is resilience. And they actually just had the um, annual um, National Pain Consortium at the NIH, and the theme was pain and resilience. And I actually got to do the keynote, and I started out my talk saying, I am so stunned actually to be here because 20 years ago when I started this, I never saw the word resilience in any National Institute of Health <laughs> program analysis. It wasn't thought of. Just like we didn't see DEI issues then. And it, you know, I'm so impressed by the changes that are being made. And so now the National Institute of Health is really becoming the Institute of Health, thinking about how we preserve health, how we you know, increase the um, quality of life in, in people with, with chronic conditions. So it's an experience. It's fascinating. And I'm, you're, you're making me think of, uh, you are making me think of, so you may not know it, but I hope you do, uh, that there's an unmet needs conference coming up for spondyloarthritis. Ah, and there's a call for abstracts. And I'm thinking like, do you see, or what do you see? I, okay, this is a loaded question again. I think I know the answer, but what do you see as the future of pain management for chronic disease and particularly like spondyloarthritis patients mm -hmm. and will behavioral therapy be playing a, a starring role in that? <laughs> Yeah, but I think behavioral therapy that it, that includes these yes. resilience elements and also the adaptive nature of good intervention. So, for example, the one size fits all yep. is not is is shown not to be terribly helpful. It's it's so important that um, that people with the illnesses actually have autonomy and that they have agency. They can pick what they want to do. They can kind of create these these. Uh, um, kind of long-term thriving plans is what I refer to them. It's a yeah, right. We don't just want to get by day to day. We actually, like everybody, want to thrive, right? We want to have a life that feels meaningful and important yes. and enjoyable. And we, um, yeah, I that to me, right? <laughs> it's human flourishing. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. That's my, that is my, I guess that's the word of 2023 that we're after here. It is. Uh, so, okay, so I have a couple thoughts. One thing I always think about, and I'm going to just uh, from an inclusion perspective, that's really interesting. And we've talked to a couple meditation people and yoga people throughout. Uh, one of the things I want to just from an inclusion perspective, think about is we often talk about meditation and there yeah. are a number of people with varying beliefs. Mm -hmm affected by these diseases, mm -hmm. meditation may not be something that they feel is accessible to them. Yeah. Do you have any experience? And I, I think of through it, uh, some of, some of it's my own experience and I'm a meditator, but mm -hmm. there are people who, who avoid meditation and prefer yeah. prayer. So does prayer have the same? Do you know if it has the same? I think it does. I think that there is. A, I think it's a form of meditation. I do too. Yeah, I do too. Just a palette. So yeah. if you're some, like if there's someone whose beliefs interfere with mm -hmm. yoga or yeah, yeah. Uh, 
meditation itself. Yes. I remember one of the best books I ever was given was called An Altar in the World, which meant uh -huh. you can pray or meditate anywhere you are. It, does, it doesn't have to be in a room or a church or, uh, and it was given to me by, by a priest, right? <laughs> like <laughs> in a Catholic church. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, I just wanted to think about, I thought about that a few times uh, mm -hmm. as we went through, but this idea of resilience is so important because it I is. think we underestimate mm -hmm. who, how much we can overcome. Yeah. And and you said something back when you're talking about how uh, th there was kind of a moment in the beginning of the pandemic where you weren't sure that everything was just going to kind of bowl you over, but you decided to create a hope bank. Is I, I can't remember what you called it. It was like, I called it a hope bank. It was like inside my, my yes. soul. <laughs> so what, what you demonstrated and something that we're learning about resilient people is that happiness to some degree is sort of a choice. So, bad things, very, very bad things happen to all of us. And some really, really unfair bad things happen to others. Um, but for the most part, what we do with the things that come our way, we have agency over. We can choose how we're going to react. And so, yes, it's appropriate not to pretend like, some, no, things are bad and you need to grieve them and deal with them. Yeah. But at some point it's like, okay, this is a bad thing that happened to me. It was really pretty unfair. I have been wallowing in it for a while. I have grieved. Now I'm going to move on. And so making that decision, you know, just like you kind of, you know what? This stinks, but I'm going to have a hope bank. <laughs> I mean, this is a bad thing, but I'm going to look at this differently. And I, I think I'll say for anyone who's listening that's been on the fence, right, mm -hmm. around like cognitive behavioral therapy, whether it's for the pain management or your own uh, needs related to spondyloarthritis. Mm -hmm. So what I will say is, uh, again, a I feel like I'm in a, like a good therapy session. So um, you're a better clinician than you think. Uh, but one of the things, I think a lot of people do fear therapy and what happens, because there there is work, right? There's yeah. the work to be done. Yeah. Uh, but what I will say is when you talk about resilience, and I'm dying to read the book now, uh, yeah. talk to you more. But uh, when I think about resilience, I've thought about this a lot the last I don't know, six months, we'll say, where I was at a point in 2013 where I had quit a job, like left a job because I could barely get out of bed. That was a hefty travel job, had two children I couldn't pick up, mm. was miserable, like mm -hmm. on the edge, miserable. Yeah. And somewhere it took me a few years, but I managed like I was done. And I remember there was a day I was laying in my bed and I was like, I am not going to be the sick mom anymore. And at this point, we, this was several years later, but we had gotten to where the medication worked. I was sleeping. I was exercising. I was eating right. I was doing my CBT, all these things together. Um, and I made a, that decision. And at that point, the pain was much reduced on my end. But to me, I was like, oh. I made it through what I expect would have been like the worst part of my life, like the challenge or whatever you can face in life. And then COVID came, right? And I did take that class and I was cruising along until COVID came, took that class yeah. right as I was falling off. And I literally, I just remember, I can picture myself standing in my bedroom, like getting out of bed, mm -hmm. looking at that photo of, of Frankfurt airport and thinking, I am going to start a hope bank, right? Because everything is like bad news article after bad yes. news article after bad. And it carried me. And then 
a really like bumpy, bumpy, bumpy part of life in 2020 and 21. And I, again, CBT probably paid, played a big role in this. Uh, really bumpy spot, but I do remember, and I can remember saying to my therapist at the mm -hmm. time, who now I just see for tune-ups, as I call them, like mm -hmm. quarterly. Uh, but I can remember saying to him, all of these things are happening to me and mm -hmm. they are happening so rapidly. I don't know how I'm actually getting out of bed and standing mm -hmm. up every day. Yeah. And then it all came, right? Like, and then we, it just went on for like six or seven months. And then that was a day where I literally was like, everything fell apart, right? Yeah. My whole world fell apart. Did I contribute to that? Yes, in mm -hmm. many ways, right? But there was all these like factors. Mm -hmm. And I can remember like getting in my, like it all happened. Mm -hmm. I remember getting in my bed, crying myself to sleep. <laughs> yeah. No joke. I mean, and I'm a pretty, but I've made these choices and you're right. And, and a lot of it, right? It's the tools I learned in, in many years of like, figuring out how to deal with the disease, but I pulled the covers over my bed, cried myself to sleep, mm -hmm. probably cried myself out of bed the next day mm -hmm. and picked up the phone and made some decisions to change my life. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I've not, and it was that hope bank yeah. later or whatever it was. Yeah. It was that hope bank. I was like, I deserve the hope out of the hope. Bank. Yes. Yes, you do. But you made a decision. So that's, that's what's always interesting. What is the inflection point where one makes the decision? I'm going to, I'm going to do something about this. And I think that's the agency that comes with cognitive behavioral therapy and pain self-management that I can do something. Yeah. And my inflection point was, mm -hmm. I'm, we talk at work a lot about one of our values is integrity, right? And mm -hmm. I term it as high moral code, but the state yeah. of being whole, yeah. right? And mine was, I'm not whole when I'm, mm -hmm. because of what I'm, of all these things going on in my life. And I decided to become whole, yeah. I, you know, and you never look back. Maybe that's my, that's my own journey. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of people don't like to talk about having a chronic disease when they also have a job, right? Mm -hmm. and, but I'm like, you know what, if we can, the hope bank, this yeah. is, this podcast is the hope bank. Hopefully I love a few people. So, all right, I'm going to stop because this is <laughs> way too long. This is so much fun. Uh, if someone, uh, is there something specific you would search or do you, do you, are there resources you would highly recommend? And let us t tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Research, if there's research, people can get So, well, there's, um, there are um, people who specialize in, in cognitive therapy for pain. Um, it, it, it may consist of some or none of the things we talked about here today, um, but it's worth going to the American Psychological Association website. There is something called a therapist finder. You can put in your area code and you could click on chronic pain and it'll help you identify people in your area that might be able to help. Okay. The Arthritis Foundation has great resources. I imagine, you know, uh, there are um, people who would be willing to read the book. That should help too. But often it is um, talking to each other and finding out who has found somebody who's particularly supportive and helpful. What resources? Because we are all our own best resources. Wow. Talking yeah, to we heard this from the physical therapy yeah. the other day is talk to people who know. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, this has been wonderful. So I guess I'll let you close. I'm like, what do you see most hopeful about the future for people with a chronic disease and pain? 
Oh my gosh. I think more than anything, the medical advances are making my head spin. So it feels like there's such better disease management in the last 20, 20 years or so. And so what that starts to leave us with are lives with chronic illness that we can now make better. Survival is less a concern as how do I lead a good life now that I do have this thing I have to live with, right. but I can still lead a rich life. And so to me, that feels really hopeful, but it also kind of puts the impetus back on the patient that you can do this. There are things that you can do to, um, to expand your life, to have a life that's even better than before and kind of move towards this flourishing that we were talking yeah. about or thriving. And, um, and to me, that feels so hopeful. And, and I'm going to get I'm just going to share one little kind of a positive psychology kind of CBT intervention that we we've loved to explore yeah. with your family. So when you said the hope bank, it reminded me of it. So this is something that we call the positive piggy bank. And we did the study in people with chronic pain and healthy college students, and also in people who were undergoing breast cancer surgery. So probably the worst kind of day in people's life. And what we had them do is we gave them a piggy bank and we said, hey, every day for the next 30 days, and for the people with breast cancer, it's every day for the next two to three weeks before your surgery, um, spend the end of the afternoon or day and think about the things that happened that day that made you happy and identify one of the things that made you happy that day, or it could be grateful, whatever works for you, and write it down on a slip of paper and put it in the piggy bank. And then what you do is you do this every single day and write down what these little wonderful events were, things, it could be simple stuff like, my friend brought me a flower, or I had the best chocolate chip cookie, or I felt actually great today and did a lot, or whatever it is. And then what you do is, in the case of the patients undergoing surgery, we told the morning of surgery, open up the piggy bank and read all those little memory slips. In the case of people with chronic pain or the students, we said after 30 days, just open up the piggy bank and read the slips. And what it does is it helps us reflect on how much good there really is in our lives. Because we as humans are wired to look for all the threat and all the bad things. So we really I pay attention to all the bad things that happen and we easily forget the good things. And so by doing this little practice, it'll help you become more aware of the things daily that you're experiencing that are positive and also help you recall later all the good things that are in your life. Yeah. Do you put those in a, do you actually put them in a piggy bank? We have piggy banks. We, in our, in our time of doing our studies, we've probably ordered almost 400 piggy banks. Oh, wow. So the other, the, I actually, actually had this conversation not long ago with someone who uh, is responsible for innovation within the company that makes Altoids, right? All the tins. We were trying to we talking about how do we make those reusable. Yeah. And in my house, we have a few of them around like where if you want to tell the universe something, um, write it down and you put it in the tin. Maybe that's like the travel version. That's like the pocket purse version of your piggy bank. It is. And so we, we've, we've helped, told people to do, you know, use boxes. You can just use yeah. kind of a deck box. In our, in our study with the African-American individuals in Detroit, they, they kept a gratitude jar. And so they put little things in a jar and screwed a little top on and made them pretty. And so I love it. That's fantastic. Oh, this has been so much fun. And I thank you. So we're, sure. I am so grateful for your time. And I we have gone way over where we normally do. So I hope Chauncey does not cut a lot out of this one. Uh, but it's been so fun. And I think uh, thank you for that and your commitment to like, helping us learn how to better take care of ourselves naturally. You betcha, Jill. It's been a pleasure. It's been great getting to know you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you.
SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.